Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Thumper podcast. My name is Patrick Hayes, and with me, as always, is Caleb Jenks from Rosebud, Texas. Tonight, we are going to be talking about John Calvin, a little bit more about the Reformation, because he was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And we're going to talk about Calvinism, uh, specifically five points. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Caleb, do you have anything to add to that introduction? Nope. It's good to be back on here. It's uh, two weeks in a row we've been back. Whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're doing a little better there. Yeah, yeah it, it'll be inter interesting to uh, get onto this. I think we all know plenty of Calvinists, or we may be Calvinists ourselves and don't realize it, so it'll be kind of fun to get onto Calvinism and kind of go over this. And don't forget, every group that we talk about and every individual that we talk about, we're going to beat up on them a little bit. We're <laughs> going to point out their shortcomings and their flaws, and we're going to beat up on them. So bear with us. Give us a little bit of latitude as we get into this stuff, you know, because uh, we, we have fun with it. And obviously, because groups are made of men and by men, they're going to have shortcomings. And that's what we're going to talk about, you know, every time we do this. So where do you want to start, Caleb? <clears throat> How much? Well, let me, let me, say, let me ask you this. Our shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this, Caleb. How much of the thousand page book institutes of the Christian religion written by John Calvin in the year 1536. Did you read in preparation for this podcast? That's what I want to know. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course that book is very influential and probably has influenced my faith, but I've never read the thing. So, yeah. Well, let me tell you, I tried, I, I'm not going to say I tried reading it, but I tried reading some of it. I pulled out some excerpts that we can use and there, the, the stuff that I took out is good stuff. I didn't mm -hmm. go through it trying to find all the problems. Uh, I went through it trying to find some points that would make sense. That would be worth it to somebody listening to understand a little bit more about this group. So that, that was my goal. Uh, so that's what I did when I went through it, but th that was his main book that, um, you know, he was known for and John Calvin, I'm going to say didn't really start a church, but John Calvin influenced a number of churches, uh, a great number of churches, because what his book tried to do, it tried to standardize theories about the, uh, Protestant Reformation and Protestantism. Would you would you agree with that, Caleb? That's what he yeah, it was, did. Yeah, it was a book that was easily adopted by many other churches and sects of Christianity that came afterward that read um, read his book. And it wasn't specifically there was never you never are going to find the John Calvin Church down the, the down the street on the corner Correct. of the street from you. And so many churches adopted this and it was it was just kind of this handbook of of at the time would have been modern uh reformed or protestant christian 
theology that was just kind of all compiled into into his book and or his version his version of, of modern christian theology yeah and keep in mind folks what was the Re reformation but the leaving of the roman church the church of rome roman catholicism the separating of yourself from them and their beliefs and uh you know kind of putting your flag down and and uh you know, saying that you are different. So his book and C Caleb used a word that is going to come up a lot and that is reformed. So if you ever go to any church that has the word reformed in the title, or they talk a lot about reformation or the word reformed, uh, or, um, they use the word covenant a whole lot, which I really resent because you know, I really like the word covenant. It's used a lot. It's a biblical word. It, it's very meaningful. Uh, but boy, if you ever go to a reformed church, you're going to hear uh, the word covenant used a lot. And uh, Caleb, have you ever attended a reformed church when you were looking for churches? Have you visited one much enough think, to? I don't think so. No. Okay. So um, my wife and I, well, and you know what? I visited one prior to uh, getting married. And then, oh boy, I visited one after afterward, but it wasn't uh, with my family. It was when we were kind of looking for churches, and it one it was one that I just came across, and I wanted to visit it and and take a look at it. So, yep. So that's it. All right, Caleb, where do you want to start with John Calvin? What do you think? What do you know? Well. Uh... I would say in my estimation, he's probably the most, aside from Martin Luther, he's probably the most mm -hmm. important reformer as far as, as far as somebody that, uh, he was kind of a second generation reformer as historians would say, he wasn't, uh, it wasn't like Martin Luther. He came a little after the fact, but yet he has great amount of influence on, on churches in, in, in all over Europe, mm -hmm. regions of Europe, eventually America. So he's he is a very important, influential person, but it is interesting, and you already brought this up that he didn't really set out to start a church. Mm -hmm. He wasn't. He really he was a already planner. a pastor, right? Yeah, and he wasn't. He also wasn't. He isn't like some of them that were known for their preaching, like Martin Luther, John Wesley. Some of those guys were really known for their preaching. Um, it was more his writings and his ideas that spread more so than he he didn't push his ideas. Uh, in the same way that some of the rest of them do. He, he didn't uh, travel as a, as a missionary, just pushing his ideas uh, the same way that they did. He, he wrote stuff and it kind of caught on because it was, it was kind of one of the first really comprehensive handbooks that a new church planter could go off of to say, all right, here we have something that kind of compiles what, what we can take on and believe. And it, and it became very influential, even though there was some, some problematic parts of it. I mean, he was spot on with some of what he believed, but course like anybody else we all have our issues our little glitches our little issues yeah. all so, right so so we should probably just jump into wasn't he a lawyer wasn't he a lawyer before he was a preacher i think he was and Boy, i, I, should I don't know it seems like half of them were either doctors or lawyers or but catholic priests or something yeah I could tell you he was French. I don't know if that helps much. Yeah, I believe he was a lawyer in France and he moved to Switzerland 
um, and that's he where he wrote. Definitely his book. moved to Switzerland. He spent his time and uh, did a lot of his work in Geneva, and I believe he pastored a church there. Uh, yeah, he but really, basically, the ruler of Geneva. Yes, he <laughs> once did. He <laughs> and that, and uh, you know what? You want to just get into that now because that was something that I wanted to bring up simply because we've talked about the failings of all these great men. And this was one failing that John Calvin also had. And that was that in Geneva, it ended up being a state church. So he kind of ran uh, the church and he ran the government there. The, the issue that you run into, and this is this is the big thing that you should understand. It was bad to the point where he was directly responsible for the execution of a gentleman named Michael Servetus, who was a heretic who Calvin had burned at the stake. That's one of the problems that you cut. Now, now don't get me wrong. Michael uh, Servetus was a heretic. I mean, his beliefs were totally uh, out there as far as uh, he did not believe that the Lord Jesus was God. He believed that he was created by God. Um, you know, he his beliefs were not sound. But that doesn't give a church leader the uh, you mean that doesn't the right. Totally yeah. <laughs> That doesn't justify burning someone at the stake publicly because they disagree with what your church teaches. That is totally I mean, I guess it, against it Christianity. On, I haven't really looked into this, you know, the specifics of it. it. Depends on how hot the fire was, you know, how humane yeah. the execution was. I mean, it might have been it they might have been a started... kinder, gentler version <laughs> of burning at the stake. Hey, they you gotta start... give them, you gotta give them a break. You only burn there's only one guy at a time, they, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and honestly, there are there are uh, there's one book that is one of my favorite. Uh, fa well, there's a couple. I I gave you one which was uh, last week called Purified Seven Times, and if you haven't read that book, you got to read it. It's a great read about the history of the Bible. Another great book that I brought up on this podcast before is called The Bible Makes Us Baptist. and you have to read that book. And again, a phenomenal historical book. In these books, the, you got to remember that we're talking about a time when Christianity was just heavily persecuted by the Catholic Church. And you have to understand that those two groups are separate. Christianity and the Catholic Church are not the same. They've never been the same throughout history, throughout the world. They're trying to make themselves look and sound the same here in America today, but they are not. They were the persecutors of the Christian Church for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And there were times when they were burning so many Christians at the stake that people were in fear for the winter coming because the surrounding area was running out of trees. Did you get that, Caleb? That's, kind of, that's somewhat problematic. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, if yeah. if anybody if nobody else is upset by it, at least the tree huggers should be upset. Yeah, at least I mean, the forget, Democratic forget Party the, will, will condemn the, the people that were dying, the poor trees. <laughs> there should have been a protest. Nowadays, they'd have never gotten away with that. 
I'm telling you, they were burning so many people at the stake that they were in fear for the amount of firewood that would be needed to keep every war- everyone in the town warm and that they might not be able to get it because of how many trees were depleted because of the number of Christians they were burning at the stake. So and this was, at the time, this was just kind of the way that the world worked as far as, I mean, it didn't matter what kind of Christianity it was. You shove nope. it down everybody's throat. And yeah. I mean, there was, there were the Anabaptists, which were, were not. Oh but yeah. Aside from that, most of the other, most of other European Christianity, there was people getting their heads lopped off and burned at the stake yeah. left and right. If you were pulling people away from the Catholic mass and rebaptizing them, as the Catholics would say, you were going to be drowned. You were going to have your head cut off. You were going to be burned at the stake. So with all that being said, John Calvin burning this one guy at the stake. I mean, Caleb, who am I? Haven't I made a mistake? Right. <laughs> right. Theologically, I mean, for crying out loud, are we going to condemn John Calvin and his writings because of this one fella, uh, Michael Servetus, being burned at the stake? No. We're going to condemn John Calvin's writings because they're foolish. <laughs> and some of his theology is just, it, it is, it's just unbiblical. So we're going to get, like we're going to get, read, you cannot read the Bible. This is one of those deals where you can't read the Bible and, and adhere to the Bible. Um, you'd, you'd have to, John, John Calvin would have had to <laughs> burn Jesus at the stake in order yeah. to, I mean, Jesus's own words on salvation get, um, completely demolished through this election theology that he came up with, which we're going to get to, yeah. we're going to get to, I think, I think we're ready it, to, to jump into it right now. The point I just want to make is that the removal from the state run church of Rome to the Reformation was not uh, by the by the Protestants was not complete. It it didn't sever all the ties. They dragged some baggage across, and John Calvin ended up being the ruler of the Church of Geneva along with the government in Geneva, Switzerland, and it ended up in bloodshed, unfortunately, which is always the case. Same thing happened with Martin Luther, and we're going to get to more of these guys during the Reformation that did the same thing. Okay, that's just that's just the way it happened back then. Do you know that that happened here in America, Caleb? Are you aware of that? Okay. When the the Plymouth plantation happened and the Massachusetts Bay colonies and all those things, do you understand that um, uh, homosexuals, uh, that was a capital crime and they were executed and it was a... Witches. Yep. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, you know, and we can get, we can get into all that. Okay. So the point is, when a church is in charge of the government, it's a mess all the time, every time, never want that to happen, just like we never want a government to be in charge of a church. All right, so that was fun, uh, giving John Calvin a black eye. Now let's talk about his beliefs, of which he had, well, he had many. Do you know how many pages his book is? It's no. just under a 1,000 pages. Wow. Which is impressive, because that's more than... Uh, half of my Bible and my right. Bible, you know, has print like this big. So, <laughs> uh, do you want to start us off with the five points of Calvinism also, uh, affectionately known as, uh, the, uh, tulip as tulip. Yep. Yeah. So that didn't come along until later on. Right. I mean, that, yeah, tulip- it's not, 
it, there weren't that bullet points. Direct, That's yeah, it. Exactly. No, no. Now, keep in mind, any Reformed church, if you go on the website of the Reformed Church of America or any Reformed churches, you're going to fi- find these points, which are which boil down um, what John Calvin believed that was different from the distinctives of, say, the Anabaptist. Yeah, so at the at the time, Martin Luther was... It was the predominant thinker, so to speak, uh, spiritual thinker, writer, whatever. And they actually agreed on quite a few points, John Calvin and Martin Luther did. So you'll, you'll see some of those things crossing over. But uh, the number one distinctive that I always think of with Calvinism that is, to me, probably the, the biggest thing that set, set John Calvin apart from everybody else in his day was his view on predestination and election, which is mm-hmm. it's interesting that that is the the last uh, the, the last of the acronyms. At the time, I mean, if you if you kind of glanced over what was going on at the time, he really he really kind of a, agreed with much of the rest of the Reformation to start with. I just want to give you a quote from his book. He said, uh, I think I have already explained with sufficient care how that men being subject to the course of the law have no means left of attaining salvation, but through faith alone. Yep. And, and he did not believe that the grace of God uh, through faith came through the sacraments of the church, like Martin Luther. Okay, the, um, from what I've read about John Calvin, he believed that grace came from the blood of Christ and Christ alone, and it, was, and it came by grace through the faith of the individual. It had nothing to do with works, and that grace was not administered by the church you went to. It was a step further than Martin Luther had made uh, right. coming away from the Catholic Church, and obviously a very important one. You know, so John Calvin was was very... Uh, he was great in a lot of these writings. He was very specific. I'm going to go ahead and say he was long-winded because, uh, boy, that book could have been made into a series. But he was uh, he, he explained everything very well, and he believed that salvation came by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man can boast to quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The interesting thing there that you mentioned is he didn't believe that grace came through partaking in the sacraments. But one interesting thing about Calvinism, as a Christian, you can't even know for sure if you are a Christian because of the, their theology on election and God choosing who he does and doesn't save. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys, if anybody saw the picture that Patrick put up on the post. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it up here. It was, oh, it was I, so funny. I got a kick out of that. So the idea here is that is that because of biblical passages that talk about the fact that God is all knowing, He's omnipotent, He He knows the future. They've taken this to the point of saying that everything is predetermined, predestined by God, including your eternal destiny, and that you have no choice in the matter. So God chooses who goes to heaven, God chooses who goes to hell. You don't get any choice in the matter. There we have it. Calvinism, some lives matter. <laughs> now you might not know what we're talking about, and it's gonna it's gonna become clear here in a minute as we go through these. So the first jump into one, tulip. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Let's just get into the beliefs uh and uh and we'll go from there. The beliefs 
boiled down to five distinctives that really are going to be what set a Reformed church apart from a lot of other churches. The first one is total depravity. Total depravity is the idea that human beings are born sinful and are sinners, and because of our flesh, there is no way for us to live a sinless life. It is impossible. Because of our flesh, we are prone to sin. We are drawn to sin. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are going to destroy us all. There is no hope for humanity on its own. That is total depravity. Human beings are sinners. And honestly, Caleb, I have no problem with this point. If we started to get into the details and tried to explain it, and um, um, like so, I said, get really detailed, maybe I could argue something. What are you thinking? Okay, so here is my thought on it. I don't have a problem with the idea of, of the fact that sin has entered into mankind. It, yep. The original sin, ongoing mm -hmm. sin, it has affected every area of our life. What yep. I have a problem with, and what you have to be careful with when you're starting to build theology, is where you take a biblical concept and you take it one step further than the Bible says, because if mm -hmm. it wasn't for this total depravity I idea, if you take any of these points away from Calvinism, some of the mm -hmm. other points don't make so, so, as much sense. So you kind of have to build on this total, the, the fact that a human is totally depraved, and so therefore they're unable to make a good decision for, toward faith in God. Yeah, and the, and Caleb, you're you're absolutely right because this first one, the the second one builds upon this foundation, and and you, you're gonna see where the problem is. None of us Christians have a problem saying that humans sin. Anyone who's a parent knows that you don't have to teach your kid to sin. You don't have to do right. it. They are going to steal the toys from their brothers and sisters. They're going to be selfish, self-centered egotistical. They are not going to naturally do the things of God. I don't think anyone has a problem with that. The problem comes from where this idea leads to. So let's jump into the second one and we can always come back. Okay, this, before no jump in. That's fine. No, no, yeah. well, I was just going to say, so basically their view to, to make this very clear, it strays from scripture in that scripture says that all have sinned and that anyone that, that says that they have not sinned is a liar and, and makes God a liar. So mm -hmm. the, the Bible is very clear on this, that we are, we are all, all depraved, so to speak. Um, but it doesn't use the word total depravity. It just says that we've all sinned and we've fallen short. When you take it to the, to the, the point that the Calvinist view takes it to of saying you're totally depraved, you are, mm -hmm. You are deprived of having any good thought, any good will in your heart. Um, I think that from what I, what my understanding of this, where he where he took it too far, is where he's where God looks down at at mankind and he says that he realizes that every intention and every thought of man was evil uh, mm -hmm. before the flood when he was talking with Noah, mm -hmm. and so this this idea kind of comes from scripture, but it, it takes it a step further to say that you do not have the capability of making any free will choice. Of not is, sinning. Sure. Choices that you have, your, your will is depraved. Your will is totally depraved. And so that you're, it's impossible for you to, 
to make a to independently choose God because of this. So you're completely at God's mercy. He must choose you. So yeah. Anyway, you can go on to the next one. But that's that is that is the problem with this, in in my opinion. I agree with you. I do. So the second one is you. Uh, so the the acronym is Tulip T T U L I P, and that is unconditional election. And this is the teaching that God's rescuing of sinners is entirely due to his will and good pleasure, and that salvation is not brought about in any way by our actions or decisions, because remember, we are totally depraved. There's nothing good in us. So the idea here is that believers were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And that means that there is also a group that was not chosen before the foundation of the world. So there are basically two groups of people. One of them is chosen by God. See, they don't have to respond to salvation because they've been chosen. It's going to happen. Right. They're going to get saved. Whether you know it or not, you're going to be saved if you have been chosen. The problem is that leaves another group that has not been chosen. Well, where are they going to go? Well, the Bible says there's only one other place they can go, and that's hell. You know what I hear from Calvinists all the time, Caleb? Whoa, that, that, that's the doctrine that's the most misunderstood. That one's just always misunderstood by everyone. I'm like, it's really not. If I have two children and I choose to give one a candy bar, I'm choosing not to give the other one the candy bar. That's a decision that I've made. (laughs) They'll try to soften the blow to say, no, really, it's not like you can't say that God is unjust because he doesn't choose everyone. Everyone was was destined for hell. Everyone is totally depraved. God just chooses some people because he knows that they're good, even though they're totally bad, whatever. And so it's not like they try to kind of play it off as if, no, it's not unjust that God does this. But I say, no, in your, in your theology, it's unjust that God does that to me and forces me to be a Christian. That's like a rapist that walks down the street and decides that he's going to force somebody to love him, whether they love him or not. It's, it's unjust to them just as much as it is to the people that are neglected. So this idea that God is, is uh, there's it's the unconditional election to me is either way that you go with it. It's unscriptural and it's unfair both ways. I mean, it's just not, it's not (laughs) just, it makes God an unjust God, which is one of the most important things about God's character is the fact that he is just. And we do believe that. So this leads us to L limited atonement, limited atonement in Calvinism this is a distinctive from other groups or religions in that it teaches that Jesus's death on the cross did not merely make salvation possible for those who choose to receive it, but that it made salvation definite for those who have been elected by God. The atonement is there only for those who God has chosen. I think that this that they must have taken this say maybe John three sixteen everybody knows that um, mm-hmm. that verse they must they must take this from some of those passages that that he, that none should perish it, that that some should not perish it, they, I mean it's it's got to come from there right it's you know he would that, he would that mostly none would perish but that some would have eternal life 
Yeah, and and this is the issue. You know, God so loved the world that he picked some. Um, so this atonement is limited to those that God chose because remember, and this leads to the next one, which is uh, irresistible grace. So follow me on this. The idea is that you are totally depraved. You cannot make a good decision, a godly decision, or anything along those lines. Therefore, salvation starts from a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have a problem with that. Do you have a problem with that, Caleb? No. I think that's totally scriptural. The Holy Spirit, okay, it, it talks about it in John 14, that the job of the Holy Spirit for the unsaved is to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Fine. God convicts us that we are sinners. God is righteous. There is a coming judgment, which means we need a Messiah. Okay. We need a redeemer and that is Jesus Christ. That's not a problem. What they say is that the grace is irresistible. Once God starts the work in you, it will be completed and it will end with you receiving the grace of God and salvation. So this work that God starts is going to uh, come to completion. It is going to be successful. And the person God started that work in is going to get saved. What that means is that all the people in the world who aren't saved, no work was ever started in them. And this is different from what the Anabaptists believe which is that the Holy Spirit of God calls to everybody. Unfortunately, some don't respond. Some take longer. Some get it real quick and easy. But see, for us, it is our decision. And that's the difference between what we call really robot theology. The idea that I could program a robot to love me and serve me and want to obey me, but it doesn't really mean anything. And in the Bible, <coughs> with Calvinism, uh, what we have is God determining who's going to be saved, how they're going to act, and they have no say in it because the grace is irresistible and because the atonement is only for those he called. And there is an election. There is a there is a choosing of those people before the world even started. It has nothing to do with anything that we've done. It has nothing to do with our merit. God just picked. And he had, obviously he has the right to do that. Uh, the Bible just never says that he did. The irresistible grace is the idea that, uh, we cannot say no once the work starts. Caleb, where do you stand on that one? So this is, this is the problem with Calvinism. Like, like many other things, there's always some, truth a little bit of truth in every lie yeah <laughs> so many of these points i mean if and i have sat in um calvinist church services and listened to their uh to their preachers and i have i have heard them pull scripture after scripture out to support this and mm -hmm. and most of them now are are a lot it's a lot more obscure uh, to find them when you listen to them, it's, it's kind of toned down. It's a little bit softened. It sounds good. You know, they're, they're good at doing this with their theology. Everybody is here is here. You mean avoiding the tough parts? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like taking into its logical conclusion of the fact that there's people that end up in hell against yeah. their will and people that end up yeah. in heaven against their will. Yeah. So 
they if you if you look at uh, Luke chapter fourteen, I think that this is kind of an interesting an interesting thing to to understand how it's easy for somebody to take parts of scripture like this and take it out of context and take it beyond what, what scripture is meaning. So Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come again. He sent forth other servants <clears throat> saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage, but they made light of it. And they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took, took, his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found both good, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the servants, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither, not knowing, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said to the king, to the servant, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So here we have a parable where Jesus is talking about the, the complexity of how different people um, are going to be introduced to the gospel, how they're going to be uh, brought into the kingdom, how there's going to be people that um, were uh, were invited and chose to go the other way. There's going to be some that uh, kind of are invited last minute and they and they and they come in. There's going to be people that come in and they're and they're supposedly Christians, but they're they're not washed in the blood. They don't have on their wedding garment. And he says he makes this statement here. He says, "For many are called, but few are chosen." So. <clears throat> There is the possibility that God can and does choose certain people. And mm -hmm. you look at people like Paul on the road to Damascus, where God, um, in a very, very uh, notable way, gets a hold of, of Paul's attention. Now, he didn't do that for just everybody else. There was plenty of people that God didn't, didn't strike them blind. And uh, you can see that Paul was chosen by God. God chose mm -hmm. Paul. He uh, very... Uh, he, much, he very much strong-armed Paul into saying, hey, you need to cut this out and, and uh, switch sides here. You're going to be on my team. Not everybody does that happen to. So, so this idea of irresistible grace, um, I think that in, in some cases, God does choose people. But does that mean that God chooses everybody um, and that everybody that isn't chosen by God, everybody that wasn't a Paul, couldn't be a Christian. If that was the case, then none of the other Christians that, that, that Paul was worshiping were really as, as much of a Christian as Paul was, unless they were one of the disciples that Jesus had called them off their fishing boat or something like that. Jesus chose some of his disciples. There's plenty of other people that followed Jesus as well. So I think it's a biblical concept of irresistible grace of God choosing us. Um, but sometimes God maybe picks one person out and chooses them. Um, but that doesn't mean that the rest aren't called. And so the, the idea here of many are called, but few are chosen doesn't mean that those that are called can't be chosen or can't be saved. That's where the choice comes in. And if you read this parable, it makes it very clear. There's a, there's a choice on our end that affects whether or not we're really at the wedding banquet. So I, to me, I just find this, I find this to be taken from scripture, but taken completely out of the context of even the 
direct passages that they take some of this from, they they completely ignore what was being said here in that passage to say, uh, you know, that some are chosen irresistibly. It's just, it's kind of funny, but. Yeah, the, the one thing that I, I think everyone should know is that, well, there's a couple things. Okay, number one, Reformed theology seems to be popular amongst the educated in Christianity. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with someone being an educated preacher, but typically you find these guys coming from Bible colleges, um, uh, cemeteries, or I'm sorry, sem seminaries, and different theological schools. And they are the smart and educated ones. And us simple Anabaptists are just, you know, we all rolled into town on a carton of pumpkins just last week, and we just got a Bible and we scream amen. And uh, we're the simple folk. And the, uh, you know, the real thinkers seem to be uh, those that believe in Reformed theology. And people want, people who want to think themselves as uh, intelligent, they usually lean that way. The other thing, and <laughs> the other thing you should know, well, and you know, let me, let me back up. There's nothing wrong with education, but understand that the Bible was not written for a certain class of people. The Bible was written for the masses. The Bible was written for everybody, anybody and everybody who could read. The Bible was meant for them to take the scriptures and read it and apply it to their lives and find the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And then a, a roadmap, an instruction manual as to how to live their life. It was not just meant for those in academia. Number two you would be amazed at the number of churches in your town, wherever you live, that are reformed churches that believe in Calvinism. And you should know what your church believes, because if it believes something completely different than what you believe, maybe that's not the place that you want to be raising your children. Now, I should also say this. Many of my favorite pastors and preachers throughout the ages have been Calvinists. Many of them who I love reading, I love listening to, uh, ones that have been around way before audio could have been recorded, I love reading about. There are lots of great pastors who are Calvinist, who are from a reformed theology who have done amazing things for God. On top of that, some of my favorite missionaries, some of my favorite stories of great men of God through the ages have been Calvinist and reformed. And Caleb, the one thing that I assumed when I first learned this theology was, well, if they're already picked by God, why do we need to go and talk to them about right. the gospel? Right? What's the point going to church? What's the point in going to church? What's the point in going out and giving the gospel to strangers and friends and family? After all, if the grace is irresistible, Caleb, I hate to tell you, I don't need to do it. Right. But, but guess what? I have not found that attitude from one single person in a Reformed or Calvinistic church that I have ever attended.
I just haven't. And I yeah, figured it, it, it is very interesting. And the the reform Have you figured churches, out the answer to that? Because no, I wondered about the same thing myself. No, other than the okay, the keep in mind, people who are truly um I've met some very sincere, lovely, godly people who are separated from the world, who love the Lord and follow the Lord and 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 read their Bible and do God's will in reformed churches. And they don't believe just the parts about tulip. Right. They believe that Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. They believe that and they do it. I've seen lots of reformed churches that have lots of missionaries that do serious work and see a lot of people saved. And again, it, it is not the logical conclusion of their beliefs. Right. So I don't understand why they're doing it, but I do know why. And that is because they believe their the Bible and they're trying to obey the Lord because the Lord said to do it and they're doing it. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm just against reformed churches and, you know, against anyone who is Calvinistic. I think there are problems with it. And I think it is not uh, the gospel and it is not the conclusions that people come to by simply reading the Bible on their own. I think if you give the Bible to 112-year-olds, I don't think one out of 100 of them is going to come up with John Calvin's doctrine. I don't think that's what they're going to come to. And we didn't even get to the last of the five beliefs yet. Can we which can we Yeah, which get before to that? we get to that before we get to that, you just brought sure. up an interesting point which Give it I me. thought I thought that this would be this would make sense. So you just mentioned something that I have wondered about about Calvin about Calvinists, and that is why would a Calvinist go and preach the gospel when they, you know, when they believe that the, theologically they believe that there really is no no reason to do it yet. Like you said, they're real mm -hmm. Christians and they read their Bibles and they mm -hmm. they want to obey the Great Commission, which is an interesting question which will lead into this next point here. But um, I have had friends that have asked me many times, many of my friends um, have asked me about, about, about this. And that's the same question that I have wondered about. And that is for people that believe in eternal security, which is going to be on this last point here. Why would somebody that believes that they're eternally secure in their salvation, why wouldn't they just be an evil monster and go around and do all kinds of mm -hmm. terrible bad things because they're going to get to go to heaven anyway, so they might as well murder or, or they're not going to be able to get to, and it doesn't matter because they have no choice, right? And, yeah, exactly. So the the um, this is this is an interesting point. I think Patrick could speak to this because it's it's one it's an issue. Of, of course, we've discussed it before on here, and Patrick and I don't agree on this eternal security issue, but um, Patrick as being somebody that is uh, once saved, always saved eternal security guy. I don't see him going around murdering people and doing all kinds of evil things and trying to abuse grace and say, well, I'm going to heaven anyway. So what does it matter? I'm just going to be a terrible person. Mm -hmm. And so my answer to this question, I think this answers the last question that we brought up has always been, if you're a real Christian, you don't need a carrot and a stick in order to mm -hmm. do what's right. Yeah, um, you don't have to be. You don't have to threaten somebody with hell in order to make them obey God and want to choose choose to do what's right. And if if the reason for your theology 
on being able to lose salvation is to have this carrot and stick approach where you can threaten people with hell in order to make them try to behave themselves and it's a behavior modification thing, then you're doing the wrong thing. You're trying to use fear rather than faith to motivate people to do what's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the one of the problems that that Calvin had here. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute after we go over this last point. But he 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 decided that he was going to enforce what he believed was good Christian virtues and values that that in order for somebody to actually be a Christian, if you were truly a Christian, you can't know for sure that you're a Christian because only God knows. But if you are a Christian, you're going to be exuding these Christian values. And so we're going to enforce these and we're going to punish you if you don't do it. So this mm-hmm. became a big deal in Geneva. Uh, anyway, so he, he used the carrot and the stick approach, um, which is interesting because there wasn't any carrot and stick in his theology. <laughs> All right. So the last point we're talking about is uh, preservations of the saints. That is the P. And what we often call it today is eternal security. And this is the idea that uh, simply, simply put, once you get saved, you will never end up in a state other than saved. Uh, once you are saved, you are saved till the day you die. There is nothing you can do to change that. That is it. There is nothing God can do to change that. Uh, once you are saved, it is a one-time irreversible event. That's the idea. So out of the tulip, um, I am a one and a half point Calvinist. So I believe in the preservation of the saints. I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved and that's the end of it. And then I believe half of the first point. Um, I believe not in total depravity, but um, in uh, mostly depravity. Most You're mostly depraved. Uh, <laughs> I always thought it was perseverance of the cha- of the saints rather than uh, preservation of the saints. I could. Be I'm fine with. That. It might be perseverance of the saints. To be but, honest but with it's, you, it would actually make almost more sense to have it be preservation. <laughs> but I, sure. I always thought it was <laughs> perseverance. Well, and but it's anyways, funny yeah. because persevering sounds like it's us doing it. Right. Whereas preservation is sounds like it's God, God doing, doing it. it. Yeah, and that's the idea. Keep, keep in mind. You know, and I'm not going to speak for John Calvin here, but for Patrick Hayes and um, Anabaptists, the uh, the idea is that um, because I have nothing to do with my salvation, because I can't earn it, there's nothing I can do to lose it. So no matter what, okay, I have had faith in God. I am now born again, so I am a child of God's family, and just like my children can never. Uh, be anything but my children, I can never be anything but God's child. That's the idea. Even if my kids grow up hating me, they move far away, they change their name, they dye their hair, you know, they, they, they say they reject me in every way they can and they don't, uh, they, they won't talk to me, they want nothing to do with me, they pretend that I'm dead, they're still my children. And that's the end of it. So that's the idea as far as the Christian. And the other side of that is Armenianism. And that's on the other side of the spectrum. And the Armenianism uh, or the Armenians, uh, they would believe that it is uh, bad works that can cause you to lose your salvation. um, And it is never secure. So you're never in a state where you would know for sure that you're saved. 
Caleb, well, tell me what you yeah. think on that. So Is that I, accurate? Yeah, I think so. So I think that this came uh, from a, a reaction to the Catholic Church, where mm -hmm. the Catholic Church was very much big on earning your way to heaven through good works. And mm -hmm. this was one of the thing that was one thing that was pretty common in the Reformation at the time was like, wait a minute, what about the cross? You know, what was the mm -hmm. whole point of Jesus dying and us being followers of Christ if we're just trying to earn our way to heaven through our good works? Sure. And of course, the Catholic Church, you know, said they believed in Jesus, but it was just it was very muddied up. So a natural reaction to that to me was to say, wait a second. We need to back up here, take a few steps back and realize that salvation comes through Christ, through him alone. So it's faith alone, grace alone. It's not works based. And mm -hmm. I think both John Calvin and uh, Martin Luther were both right on this. Um, my wh where I disagree isn't I, I don't consider myself Armenian by any by any stretch. Mm -hmm. um, my, my my issue with this, which is is the same as pretty much all these other points. I don't consider myself a Calvinist in any way, shape or form. But I can see some truth in all of these points. And my, mm -hmm. my, my view on salvation is that it comes through faith in Christ alone. It's his grace. And it has nothing to do with our works or how good or how bad we are, how, how bad of a thing we do. It's our faith in Jesus that saves us. Um, the only thing I really defer from this on is the idea that it's, that it's irreversible, especially in this sense where they say that you're either born you're born as a christian or you're not you're you know god chooses you before your birth you are mm -hmm. chosen by god to be a christian and you're saved against your will um, and there's nothing you can do to lose it um, my my idea is faith is it is a choice on our point and i can just the difference between me and patrick on this is i consider that a an ongoing act of faith of, of continuing to put my faith in jesus and trusting that's that his work on the cross is finished as long as I put my faith in him. If I, if I claim next year to be an atheist and I say, I no longer believe in Christ, that would be where I would, where I would not take it to the bank that I'm still going to heaven against my will uh, at that point. So that's, that's really my only, my only issue with this is where it goes to that, to that point. And I could be dead wrong on that too, but um, it's interesting because most all of my Anabaptist friends or the, the people that I referred to normally as Anabaptist friends, all believe in uh, salvation through through faith alone, grace alone, but would not believe in eternal security, um, mm -hmm. un unlike the Baptists, um, which but, we both come from kind of a similar heritage, but split on that issue yeah. a bit. But they believe differently than you do in that they believe that they can lose their salvation through sin, correct? Um, through sinful living. Yeah, I, I would say that they would say through unrepentant sin, um, and which that is a little bit different for me because I really, I mean, I, I think that we should preach repentance. People should repent for things. Sure. But if it's dependent on me remembering every single sin and every little bad thing that I do, and if I forget one and I don't repent yeah. of it, then I'm going to hell. And yet I'm still trusting Jesus. And to me, that's relying on my own works uh, on, on, my, on my end. And I would say that there are a lot of specifically Mennonite Amish people that do take it to that point where it, it it's the unrepentant sin issue can become mm -hmm. a, an area where it's, it's kind of really depending on your, your, on your end. And I, I, I certainly do disagree if it gets, gets to that, that point. Yeah. That's what I've run into with a lot of the Mennonites here in the Valley that I've spoken to. And they believe that based on your 
sin, you can always, that one of the phrases that I've seen written on their walls at their homes is, it must be a popular phrase because I've seen it in more than one Mennonite home that I visited. And it said something along the lines as, uh, you know, no, no sin is worth, um, no sin is worth losing heaven or something like that. You know, no sin is worth losing you know, I don't want to say eternal security, but so uh, I have never. I've been in hundreds of Mennonite homes. And I've never seen that. I haven't yeah. been in a lot of Mennonite homes there in the valley. Sure. Um, and there are there is thousands of different kinds of Mennonites out there. But yeah, in general, yeah. most of my Anabaptist friends would say that you know they they would reject eternal security on the grounds of saying that somebody couldn't walk away from God. I mean, obviously, the Bible says that nobody can pluck you out of his hand. Mm -hmm. And I certainly do believe that my salvation is secure in, in Christ because of my faith in Christ. But my choice to, to choose Christ, me being saved through through faith alone, then same way I got saved is the same way I stay saved, I, I, is the way I would say it. You know, my, sure. my faith my faith in Christ is an ongoing thing. So it's, it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very minor difference as far as, as far as salvation goes on the way that I look at it from this. But the problem with tulip with this p here with the, the preservation or perseverance of the saints to me especially in this case is very unscriptural when it says that you because god chose you before before you were even born you became a christian you are a christian against your will there never is that conversion experience there never really yeah. is a point where you get saved where where god changes you and you choose him because you can't choose him so then it's just to me, it's very, I've known people that were Calvinists that were very confused on and had a lot of doubts about their salvation. Well, I'm not really sure because I have this bad thing or that bad thing. And this comes mm -hmm. straight from John Calvin, where it's like, um, you want to pr preach this, this, uh, uh, what do you call it? Well, the Lutherans were really good at trying to, um, trying to preach this idea of, of easing the conscience of, uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, assurance assurance of salvation mm -hmm. and so this this theology is the most amazing assurance you could ever have to know that you are saved you're 100 percent guaranteed to go to heaven except that you might not actually be a christian if you're if you're a calvinist and you don't mm -hmm. you, you don't really know that you're a christian because just because you're exuding these good works there's people that quit exuding these good works and they are no longer a christian um and, and they just say well apparently they were never christian in the first place um, and so that's that's where it gets kind of muddied up here. I mean, they it's 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 very complex because you don't really ever know if you're a Christian just because you're a good person. Uh, somebody could be faking it and you, you you don't really ever know. And so that's that's kind of messed up, in my opinion. I mean, to me, one of the, the biggest blessings that I have as a Christian is my assurance of salvation, my assurance that when I, I can go to bed and sleep on a on my pillow at night, sleep with a, a clean conscience, knowing that through Christ, if, if something happens to me, I, I know I'm going to heaven. That's something mm -hmm. that as a Calvinist, even though they have this perseverance of the saints theology, they can't necessarily know for sure. I mean, there's some of them that are pretty confident that they think they're a Christian, but some of them don't know. Yeah. That's a weird place the, to be. Uh, <clears throat> I was asked once by one of my Mennonite friends, well, if you can't lose your salvation, then why obey God or, or do anything uh, that God says? I said, well, why would your kids obey you? Why do your kids obey you? Are they scared that you're going to kick them out of your family? And the idea that you come down to is 
I obey God for two reasons, and those are the carrot and the stick. Uh, I love God, and I want to please God, and that's why I obey God. And I've found that when I obey God, my life is better, and I enjoy it. And there are blessings that come with it, and I know it makes God happy, and that makes me happy. And then there's the stick, and sin is bad, and there are consequences for sin. And the more I sin, the more messed up my life is, and the more I suffer, and I don't enjoy it. And there are consequences and curses and punishments with sin. But those are the same things that my children realize is when they obey mom and dad, life is easier and they enjoy it and they get blessings and good things come their way. And when they disobey mom and dad, then they get the rod of reproof and life is more difficult and they don't enjoy it as much. And it's so, <clears throat> but at no time are my children concerned that they're going to get kicked out of the family. Right. They just know that they might have a bad day. So it's the same way uh, with God. You know, that's why I obey God, because I love God. And I found that obeying God is a much easier way to live. Doing things my own way and living in sin, it's no fun. It's not enjoyable. You know, so uh, anyway. And that's straight up yeah. scripture. I mean, yeah. we're, <laughs> we, we love God because he first loved us, is what the Bible yeah. says. Yeah. Um, and so as we experience God's love in our life, we're drawn to that love and we and we ch we choose to love God because he loved us. And uh, of course, maybe I'm starting to sound like a, a Calvinist here <laughs> where, where I where I say that. But I mean, in, in reality, that, that that is the truth of the matter. Our, our love for God and our obedience for God, to God should come out of a free will choice on our end where we, where, where we say, you know, I, I want to choose to serve you and obey you because I love you, not because I'm afraid that if I screw up in any way here and don't, you know, don't walk as a perfected Christian that I'm going to hell. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this in church this morning. There was um, the guy that had devotions at our church this morning. He mentioned how he was uh, talking, comparing the Christian life to the Olympics and, and how you you see guys that are that are running the race, trying to cross the finish line ahead of somebody else. And he's, he said, you know, the difference between that and and the Christian life is that we don't necessarily have to try to beat out the next, the ne you know, we don't have to beat the next guy across the finish life, line. We don't have to be better than them. Our our goal isn't just the finish line, but it's it's the race along the way, how much we serve and, and contribute to God's kingdom along the way. And that really is the focus. Um, I, I brought up um, in church this morning, I've known Christians that one of the things that I've, and these are Christians that I love and respect, but one of the common things that I will hear from them is whatever it takes, I just want to make it home. That's, that's like the most important thing to me is I just want to make it to heaven. And I'm thinking as a Christian, that should not be the most important thing for me is my salvation because Jesus already took care of that. That's mm -hmm. Jesus's biggest concern is my salvation. Yeah. Yep. But I don't have my to worry biggest, about it. My biggest concern should no longer be an inward focus of myself. And it mm -hmm. looks like my camera just shut off again. But my my, okay. my, uh, my focus as a Christian, because, because God has chosen to love me, because I've chosen to love him, my focus changes here. <laughs> and, and I now am inspired to, to give to the needy, to lift people out of poverty, to um, choose to share the gospel with others. My focus is no longer on me and my own salvation because Jesus has taken care of that. Mm -hmm. Let's see if I can get my camera back on here. You can take it. 
No, that's good. To be honest with you, Caleb, we're over an hour anyhow, and I got to get up early tomorrow for work. So um, I think that's a good enough time to call it a night. We got through the five points. We talked just a little bit of John about uh, John Calvin, and we uh, got to hear why you were wrong about eternal security. So I think we <laughs> wrapped up all the important points, you know, in one evening. So yeah, I that's. Say, Let's get I, I together and do it again next week. Generosity <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, I was just going to mention, um, Patrick had said earlier on, there's uh, plenty of churches out there that are that are Calvinist churches, um, and I made just a few notes here that I figured I'd run through before we before we sign off. Um, so I, I mentioned this before. John Calvin decided that he should come up with a way to enforce these Christian values that he believed that if you're a Christian, mm -hmm. the way you know you're a Christian is because is by partaking in the sacrament sacraments like baptism and communion and stuff. That is what shows that you're a Christian by behaving good, not, um, not partying, drinking, dancing. Some of these things were things that he said, you know, if you're doing these things, then obviously you're not one of the chosen and we have no tolerance for this. So we're going to excommunicate you. We're going to have public, um, public shaming, public, um, church discipline basically so this is how they started started running the church the church takes over the government the government um starts burns you at the stake <laughs> yep cramming religion down your um throat so this was this was kind of uh, i think from the get-go calvinism was proved to be bad theology if you just if you look at the history there in geneva um, so yeah, no drinking, no dancing. It was very strict. And he was, I, th I find Calvin to be as a lawyer, he was kind of a letter of the law kind of guy and he was very strict and he was pretty strict in his theology. Um, so the first churches to adopt his, uh, theology were the Huguenots in France, uh, mm. John Knox in Scotland formed the Presbyterian church. And the, I think mm -hmm. the Presbyterian church still to this day is probably the, the most pure Calvinist church that there is. <clears throat> and pretty then, much any, anything coming out of Scotland is reformed theology and Calvinistic. I mean, that's across the board. And a lot of times you got to keep in mind, these churches don't nowadays necessarily look like they did back then. And then um, it's not it. like, yeah, exactly. If you walk in the door of their church, their church services, you know, the music is going to be some of the same songs that other yep. people are singing. Some of the, you know, it's very similar church service, but it it, it has come down. And in America, the English Calvinists uh, were known as Puritans. And these guys influenced a lot of, I mean, a lot of the founding fathers were Puritans. They were, um, this, this definitely influenced <laughs> religion in America. And there's quite a few sects of Christianity that came from the Puritans. And so you probably will find, even if you are not at a church that is strictly Calvinist, you'll probably find and hear your, your pastor or a pastor in some churches, some denominations that are going to be preaching Calvin, Calvin's ideas in one way or another. So it's good to, especially if you can at least kind of memorize the, the TULIP acronym and you kind of you kind of recognize that there's there's a lot that that doesn't cover but it covers the most important basics of those distinctives and if you hear those things it definitely um would be worth kind of checking into it if if if, if those things ring a bell with what you hear on a regular basis on sunday you may be in a church that's pre preaching straight out of calvin's handbook for christian theology or whatever it's called and it might be worth looking and seeing just is the, is that church really preaching from the bible and is that really where you want to be i'm not saying that um, if you're a Presbyterian and you're going to Presbyterian church that you can't stay there, but I'm, I, 
I'd, I'd certainly give it a second thought um, if, if that's if that's where where your church is at because it is problematic. And the same thing I said last week. Um, Paul was Paul was hit the nail on the head when he said, "Don't follow me, follow Jesus." So don't don't follow John Calvin, follow Jesus. And that's really what it comes down to. And on pretty much any church, doesn't matter what the church is. I don't care if it's my church or Patrick's church or anybody else. Follow Jesus and don't get distracted following some guy's crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. I agree. As always, do your own homework. Don't believe anything we say. I'm totally fine with that. I'm, I'm never going to push anyone to, you know, listen to us and, and make massive changes in their life. Listen well, to until God. Well, we get bigger. Until, yeah. until we get bigger on here. Yeah, once until we have we're a bigger rich following, and famous. Yeah, once we, we have a few thousand followers, and public we can start kicking and people can, yeah, start, out. Yeah, and, exactly. Yep. If you want a better parking spot, you're going to have to give more money. <laughs> <laughs> right. But for now, I think, yeah, we're, yeah we, we, we're we'll stay humble. Like a couple yep. thousand followers. So, yep. so not a we're, big not, deal. we're not trying to start a movement yet. We're so in that still safe Jesus spot next year. We're in that, you know, comfortable area there where we can say whatever we want. No one's really taking us very seriously. Yeah. All right. Everyone have a good week and uh, we'll talk to you next Sunday night when we discuss... What some other gonna, church yeah some other church or or reformer <laughs> well played okay that's what we'll do have a good week everyone good night good night